The Meet for TCAS is brought to you in part by SoneLab, a recording studio in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Offering recording, mixing, and mastering of all styles of music, we even master podcasts. Email info at sonelab.com for more information. That's info at sonelab.com. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So, this is the Meet for TCAST. You might always start like that. Who knows? Welcome to episode six of the Meet for TCAST. This is Elizabeth McDuffie. And Mark Allen Miller joining you again. We're sitting beneath three elephants as per the usual. <laughs> Somebody's going to be like, what are you talking about? Well, they'll just have to come over and see. (laughs) Oh, great. Now we're going to have open invitations. Everybody's just going to come knocking on the door. Nope. Only if you're super special and you're an author or a musician that we are interested in talking with. That makes sense. The rest of you can stay the hell at home. So this time around, for season one, episode six, we have a continuation of the April 2019 Poems, Rose, and Pints. If you haven't checked out the other two episodes for that, they are available everywhere. And who are we featuring this time? We're featuring our featured reader, whom we are very honored to have. Indeed. Jane Yolen. Um, 2019 actually marked the publication of her 365th and 366 books. <laughs> wow. 11 of her books are adult poetry, including this year's Mixty Maxty, which is some of her humorous poems about famous writers, and Compass Roads, a book of poems about the Pioneer Valley, which she edited for Straw Dog Writers Guild. Hey, I know those guys. We do. They are also supporters of Me for Tea, aren't they? They're regular supporters. They support every year that we have a very nice arrangement. Yeah, If you want to support Meat for Tea, you can go to meatfortea.com and discover ways you can do so because we are not academically affiliated, so we don't have large institutional funding. Very much to that point, we're actually fully independent. Currently operating with a staff of two people, both of whom are sitting behind mics right now. Right now. Right now. So, without further ado, I think we can let Jane Yolen... I think she can speak for herself. I think she has a lot to say. It's very good. Stick around. Wow, thanks. And congratulations. Thank you. This is... um. I want to say that I've sent things to plowshares and they've never taken anything. So fat on plowshares and yay on meat for tea. All right. Thank you for staying. Thank you for being here. And um, let's go. I'm going to start. Most of these are new, new poems. which always makes me nervous to read to people um, because if they ever get published, they may be very different. 
um, or they may be very different and never get published. But um, this one actually is going to be published in an interesting little magazine called Mom Egg. And it's called Scars. I saw my mother undressed once. There were ribbed scars on her back. I rubbed my point finger lightly over one of the ridges. She shuddered at my touch. I asked her if it hurt. She said it was a reminder, her voice almost cooing. I was too young to understand. Years later, when they took my wings before I could even stretch them, before the air had foiled around them, I remembered that day. My daughter and her daughters will never go under that particular knife. I will keep them safe, hidden, till the wind can lift them. There is so much sky. Now, some of you may know that um, for my sins, I edited recently a very large book of poems about the valley. Um, and my secret sin is that I put some of my own poems in it. Um, so I'm going to read you a few of those. This one is called Lake Hitchcock. Um, I'm not sure how many of you know that Lake Hitchcock was named after Pioneer Valley geologist Edward Hitchcock, who was considered a, transcendent, a transcendental naturalist who did much of the early work uh, identifying the parameters of the prehistoric lake that once covered this valley. The ice sheet retreated like the Roman army, shields up, slowly and with care. The blockade came next, that damned moraine. The lake gave no apology, just moved in, staying well past its welcome. 3,000 years is not an overnight or an oversight either. Edward Hitchcock explained it all, made transcendent maps, married it in his mind. How else could it have how else could it take his name? And this is about the Oxbow, one of my favorite places actually in the valley. Though I remember it before it had all that stuff around it. Um, and, uh, but this is how I remember it. Oxbow on the Connecticut River. It's you bend the frame of the valley, that old wooden piece around a bullock's taut neck. Northampton is the bowpin, Springfield the whip. We are not so much a team as a yoke of strangers getting through New England seasons with as much grace and dignity as the bow allows. We plow art and commerce, farms and academies, second homes and third generations into the soil as easily as asparagus, as possible as pumpkins. Sometimes what we raise is havoc, sometimes prayer. We pull life's heavy machinery. We vigil along the river, always under the heavy burden of the oxbow. I live in Hatfield, which is the place where no one goes to unless by mistake. Um, we're at the um, tip end of Northampton. And if you're going by 5 and 10, which we used to call the nickel and dime highway, uh, you go right by us. Um, if you go by the river, you go right by us. If you go by 91, you go sort of right through us without noticing us. 
Um, but we are famous for Sophia Smith, who was the one who started Smith College. A little story about Sophia Smith you might find interesting. She used to sit as girls were not allowed to, to go to the academy, um, which was Smith Academy um, before it was Smith Academy. Um, but they could sit on the steps outside and listen in on nice days to the boys at their lessons. Now, she came from one of the posher families in the, in the town, and she had a brother, an older brother, and a sister. And the older brother, because he was the oldest and because he was the brother, knew that he was going to inherit everything. Uh, and the girls would have to just come and beg for whatever they could. He used to charge them five cents to drive the, the horse and carriage around when they needed to go places. Uh, he was a piece of work. He was so cheap that when he was on a trip, and I don't remember where, he got very sick, and he was too cheap to spend 10 cents for the doctor, and he died. <laughs> so then the girls were going to get all the money, but the other sister died, so Sophia Smith ended up with all the money in the family. By this time, she was older, and she was profoundly deaf, um, but she had a will. I mean, not one that she wrote down. I mean, she had a will. And she decided she was going to make a school for girls. The young minister at the time was John M. Green. And he tried to get her to give all her money to Yale or Amherst. And she refused. She said, I want to start an academy for a, a college for young women because there had recently been another college started for young women, Mount Holyoke. And he said, well, don't do it in Hatfield. It's right by the river. There's a strange miasma that comes up. Do it in Northampton, <laughs> which is how Smith College got to Northampton. Anyway, that's a long way around to introduce this particular poem. It's called, oh, and she's buried in Hatfield. Miss Sophia Smith regrets. Sitting on the lower step of her impressive Hatfield grave, Miss Sophia sighs. She glances across to the elementary school where girls, as well as boys, sit bent over desks writing. Remembers sitting on the steps of the old Hatfield School, listening carefully to the boys inside, tolling their lessons like small bells. It had given her a thirst for learning, a desire to fill up empty vessels, to educate smart young women. And when I went to Smith College a hundred years later, I drank a toast to her, not knowing that one day my husband would be buried near her, but a few steps away. So I see her grave a lot. Now, because of this wonderful event that has happened for Meet for Tea, and because they have just taken a suite of poems from me, I thought I would read this suite of poems. Um, and just to let you know, three things. I'm an Emily fanatic. Um, you can write in Emily's room in her house for a donation of $150. <laughs> I wrote two hours there. And two of the poems in this piece um, were written there. Um, 
you may consider that a lot of money to spend for a poem that nobody pays you for. <laughs> but let me tell you a little story first. This is a publishing story. My agent, who I have a, had an old agent who died, and I have a new agent who had been her assistant, and they both said to me at one time or another, if it isn't published, it can't be republished. If it isn't printed, it can't be reprinted. And it's not publishing it that gets you any money, usually, in poetry. It's republishing. So keeping that in mind, I got a phone call from my agent about three months ago who said, are you sitting down? I said, yes. <laughs> I lied. <laughs> I wasn't sitting down. Um, she said, all right, I'm going to tell you something, but you are sitting down. And I said, yes, I'm sitting down. <laughs> I lied. I was doing the dishes. Um, she said, okay, remember that poem? And it was a little poem about karate that I had written for a children's anthology. I said, yes, it was about eight lines, rhymed. She said, we have been offered, uh, somebody has offered to buy it for reprinting. It's a uh, textbook company, and it has many, many programs that wants to use it. And I said, OK, that's great. She said, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm, yes, I'm sitting down. <laughs> I lied. Um, she said, they're giving us $10,000. $10,000. For a poem? Are you kidding me? I'm giving them away for free. Uh, she said, uh, I told you, it can't be reprinted unless it's first printed. So all of you poets out there, think about that. I sat down. She said, you're sitting down now, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. OK. This, oh, and I also have to tell you um, that the final poem is called OK Cupid. A woman really went on to OK Cupid, which is one of those online dating services, um, as Emily Dickinson. And she, 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 I read it. It's really hysterically funny. And she, she read the. Um, uh, she said, I'm, I'm Emma Dickinson, and um, I live in Amherst. I'm a poet. Um, I'm a little shy. I keep to myself. It went on and on like this. She got interest from a number of men. I think she even put, you know, a picture, the picture of Emily Dickinson on. You know, I'm not sure. I don't remember that part. Some of them had no clue that she wasn't Emily Dickinson. <laughs> And they said, you know, they were doing all of their strutting and, 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 you know, blowing up of their back feathers and that sort of thing. But two guys got it right away and answered in, in kind, you know, well, my name is Judge Lord and I'd like to meet you, you know, that sort of thing. So you couldn't leave that alone, right? You had to, you had to write a poem about that. So this is called the Emily Dickinson Suite. One, Emily Dickinson's house. It surrounds her mystery. Doors open, close. History deceives her, receives her. She is violated by our curious gaze. Once corporeal, she walked, talked to her sister, wrote her letters wildly, widely, through the world, though the world did not respond. Once she dropped baked goods over the sill into childish hands, mouths full, they shouted thanks. Once she walked her ally dog, she listened to the buzz of flies playing on the black and white keys of her heart. No one else 
in the big house heard them. She made the world up, word by word, poetry in the half-light. We make her up as we go along a certain slant of mystery. Two, on writing in Emily's room, is there something in the walls, a, a memory in the horsehair chair, the light slanting through the window on this early June afternoon? Can I feel a breath stirring that is not mine, a pattern beyond wallpaper, the imprint of that mind? Is that the flash of a swallow whose great, 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 many times great grandparents made that same flight between homestead and road? The tall sentinels of trees were they new planted when Emily sat dreaming the monopoly of her poems? Or am I just touched by chance and a writer's hope for inspiration and the walls, like Emily, are many iterations away from being alive, real, muse-like, and ready to assist when the words do not come, when words do not come, when words do not come with ease. Three, two hours in Emily's room. This room is slanted towards poetry, canted towards metaphor. On rainy New England days, it drips rhyme. Yet I am an awkward fisherman trying to catch slippery words. My nets mesh too large. Emily's was fine. If she is the muse of this museum, she's on a trip perhaps in Boston, perhaps poling down the swollen Connecticut in a boat of prose. I must seek my own muse now sulking in the parlor. In a few minutes I will collect her. We will head home. Perhaps the fish dinner will still be warm with a dessert of fine words, cream topping of rhyme, and a small glass of old wine. And that last wine is spelled W-H-I-N-E. For certain light, she was right, you know, about that certain slant. The light looked different that side of the Atlantic. The clouds further up anchored in the blue, the gray. Even friends from the Midwest comment on Midwest comment on how large the sky seems in the highlands, over the five fields, three or four distinct cloud layers, busy as gulls on the coast. Back in the coves of New England, I am in a duvet landscape, wrapped and somewhat trapped by borders and the orderliness of the towns. The light cants down on us, as permanent as a street lamp and as insistent. Five. Okay, Cupid, I am Emily, of, Emily D. of Amherst. And I actually give you the place where you can go and Read it. I am a poet, rather plain, hair a burr, and not a mane. I garden and I sometimes bake. I am not looking for a rake. I dream of love, but write of death. The two are one, just paused by breath. You may, you might well come and visit me, this side for an eternity. And we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. Now, the next six poems are 
political. I warn you, I lean quite left. No, I lean very left. So if, if you are a Trump supporter, um, your nose will be out of joint. Uh, probably not, but you never can tell these days, you know. This one actually just got sold to an anthology, which means I might actually get some money, um, uh, of, um, of uh, so were gargoyle, uh, giant, and troll poems. Who knew, right? <laughs> you got to look and find these things, because you can't just make them up. It's called Grin of Stone, a political rant. That gargoyle, church-born, full of Sunday sanctity, incense-filling, flared nostrils, screech of stone, claws on slate roof, out-shouting the downstairs singers of soul, if you want to know his heart, check that grin of stone. Just because he lives above the righteous, like the butcher above his shop, does not mean he has given away the last laugh, does not mean he will not slaughter what he admires, does not mean he will not anoint his meat with the church's own holy oil. Just so you think I'm a nice person, I now disabusing you of that notion. <laughs> I, I write a poem, well, I actually write a poem every day, and um, I send them out to about 1,060 subscribers, um, and, and every, every March 17th, I write a St. Patrick poem. I'm getting a little thin now, so if you have any ideas for more St. Patrick's poems. But this was one I wrote this year. It's called Last Snake in Ireland. So St. Patrick looked at the last snake, thought about Pistis Sophia, the angel in charge of placing the serpent into the Garden of Eden gazed deeply into the creature's dark eyes, felt a moment of regret for beauty lost, then spoke the words of the anathema, that curse only saints can control, and certain politicians right before being impeached. In the, last, in the next moment, there was a sinuous pile of ash at his feet and a sigh in the air, as if heaven and the watching public simultaneously gave thanks, both for the disappearance of the snake and their own release from fault. This one is called Tipping Point. There is always a tipping point between what is good and sane and the trigger finger of evil. The passenger pigeons knew it, falling in the thousands, shooting stars from the clouds. The people in the seas of Hiroshima looking for mercy from searing waves. The dinosaurs, both meat eaters and the gentle giant vegetarians knew it, cowering under the hail of the sky. And we now walking between the third rails of honor and venality, balancing on the precipice, trying to dance our way out of the quicksand of politics, know what a tip we are in. The world has become a garbage dump. Only the heavens above us still promise sanctuary, though we are told we have to die first to get there. This one is actually in rhyme. I actually write lyrics. I'm in a band. I'm 80 years old and I'm in a band. My, <laughs> my, grand, yeah, my grandson said, she's in a band? Nana's in a band? What does she play? And my son said, the audience. <laughs> We're a bunch of you know, smart asses in my family. Um, 
but it's called when I'm doing because I read poems and and do the song make the songs. Um, I don't sing anymore because I have no voice left. Um, we're called Jane Yolen and the set and the Three Ravens, but when I'm not with them, they're just the Three Ravens. So I'm really the fourth Raven. Anyway, um, we just we just did a gig in um, Boston at BC, which was a lot of fun. We cost a lot of money. Do you? Oh. Come talk to me. <laughs> this one is called King of Kings. You know, listening to, to my images, you will you think I was a good Christian. I'm Jewish. But, <laughs> you know, I never mind. King of Kings. My father lives in marble halls. He eats off plates of gold. He orders men to lie for him. They do as they are told. My father's hands are small and fine. He never catches cold. His doctors learn to lie for him. They do as they are told. My father's friends live far away where they are not paroled. The halls are made of iron, and they do as they are told. My father's troops on borderline stand guard in heat and cold, arresting little children. They do as they are told. My father lives in marble halls. He eats off plates of gold. His day is circumscribed for him. He does as he is told. And then this one is called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Oh, before, I, before I read this, I have to tell you a story. I was with my husband traveling in Ireland. It was right after the, the, the towers had fallen. Um, right after, um, um, we still had the tickets to go to, to to Ireland, but we were in Scotland at the time, so we could fly to Ireland. We could fly to Ireland, but we didn't. We drove to the to the ferry and took the ferry over to Ireland. Um, and we had been driving for quite. So we stayed with friends, and then we were driving for quite some time. And you know how you drive when you drive a little. It's it's fun for a while, and then suddenly your butt gets tired. And I said, I need to walk. So we stopped, we got out, and it was a little church with a little churchyard and with old graves, and we were wandering around because we love old graves, and I stumbled over something um, and put a hand out uh, and, and grabbed a gravestone to steady me, and I looked down, and the gravestone said, horsemen pass by. Now, if you know anything about William Butler Yeats, that was on his gravesite, and I went, Really? And I stepped back and it said, William B. Yates. I had stumbled on William Butler Yates's graveyard, at gravestone, and it held me up. Now, that was a moment that a poet needs, needs to happen, right? So this is called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Um, that came from a, a news story that said, Israel convicts a Palestinian poet for a poem they say incites violence and supports terror. Yeats is crouched in his grave, preparing to turn over, like meat on a spit, one more round and he is done. Jerusalem, where King David wrote poems about politics and self-doubt, has been canceled. The garden is closed for the millennium. Lions no longer lie down with lambs, for all the psalmists are in prison on one side of the Golan Heights or another. I am waiting for the summons on my door, that invitation to the oven, that long slouch to the old city, Bethlehem or DC.
I think this is the last political one. Maybe not. I sometimes lie. Um, it's called Long Road Home. His name is Juan, Julio, Carlos, Ernesto, battling to find his wife, daughter, son. The ship has foundered, shipmates murdered, island shattered. He is caught between rocks, seduced by magic, traduced by politicians, reduced to poverty. His wife makes a living, sewing, unsewing. His children sulk in the corners of their old house. He is trying to get home, but home is no longer there, but here, in memory, mourning. The cell doors close. You think you know this story, but it is all Greek to him. His name is Pablo, Santiago, Eduardo, Rodrigo, Marcos, Ramiro, Jesus. And of course, when you look at Jesus, it looks just like Jesus on the page. Now, I don't want you to leave terrifically depressed. So the last two poems are humor poems, uh, both in form. The first is rhyme, the second is a prose poem. And they were both fun to write. Whether they're good poems, I don't know, but they were fun to write. Um, I wrote this first one for a humorous poetry contest that Submittable um, was doing. It was one of the chosen few, but I did not win. Not that you got much when you won, but I, at least I was on the list. It, um, it, it's called Love Affair with Submittable. I want to submit. I really do. I plan to submit when I am through. I'll spread the sheets upon the table, pick the best when I am able. I give up my all and then give in. Submit, submit, time to begin. Oh, wait, I see three typos still. I'll soon submit. I surely will. Except you'll think this is so absurd, but seems I've lost submit's safe word. And then this one is called Angry Muse, a po prose poem. There was uh, Joe Moniger, who teaches somewhere in New Hampshire or Vermont or Maine, um, wrote, muses are the invention of people who have never written. And I wanted to take issue with that. And when I finished, I sent the poem to him. Who is this Joe, she asks, a figment of some failed writer who has never sat down long enough to talk to me? I have never seen her this angry. Frustrated, yes, desperate, certainly. Deadlines are not her friends, hanging over the fence, their faces long and menacing, chanting her name. We are late on a book. My fault, not hers, I fell in love. She equates that with falling into a fault line or off a pier's end. Revisions are her co-conspirators, though never to be trusted, since often they delete the pages she and I have the most fun writing. But this face I have never seen before, somewhere between anger and despair. I show her his website. She scans it quickly, head canting to one side as if listening. Then she grins. He has run through three muses. The rest have given up on him. Betty forgets to put milk out for the brownies, too, I say. She growls, lives in New Hampshire, as if that is enough. Live free or die, I remind her. She smiles. That can be arranged. <laughs> I hope she's kidding with muses. It's hard to be sure. So thank you very much. So uh, maybe we should just like give it up for... Uh, Jane Yolen and Ernest Brute and Carolyn Zykowski and 
Seth Cable and No No Project. And who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting something. Yes, and, and Khalif Neville and Beth Felson and everybody who made this whole thing completely ruled. I didn't bring anything to read because this was about y'all. And that's how it went. All right, love you guys. Thank you so much. That was good. That was good. And that concludes our three-part series from Poetry, Prose, and Pints, April 2019. You can find writing from most, if not all, of our readers from that event, including Jane Yellen, who's been featured in several issues of Me for Tea, by going to meetfortea.com forward slash buy.htm. Meet for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meet for Tea, The Valley Review, mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Sewn Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meet for Tea at www.meetfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meetforteacast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meet for TCast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meet for TCast. If you've attended a Meet for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meet for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meet for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth. Meet for Tea on Instagram and on the Meet for Tea and Meet for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meet for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts.